our great study of the great Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever walked the earth, Jesus Christ himself. And in this particular section of the great Sermon on the Mount, there is a contrast that Jesus is drawing between the perverted practice of the Pharisees as they had perverted the law of Moses and misapplied, a contrast between that perversion and the pure law of Moses, and the initiation of teaching on attitudes as well as actions that would be incorporated into the coming kingdom of Christ, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A key verse in this particular part of the sermon takes us back to chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And throughout this sermon, Jesus talks about the attitude of the Pharisees and the motivation of the Pharisees. And many of the things that they did to be seen of men, they were obviously motivated wrongly in much of what they did. And so Jesus exposes that hypocrisy and also at the same time teaches us of the beautiful spirit that we are to manifest if we are to be true followers of Jesus Christ. And as he began the great Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, he began, as we studied earlier, with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, indicating the genuine humility that must characterize every follower of Christ, every child of God. Now we're ready for verses 38 through 42 of the fifth chapter of this great Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus again draws a contrast between what they had heard or had practiced in a perverted way at times and the true practice of the law and the attitude that should manifest, be manifested by every true follower of God, as we said. And so he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. These are very powerful statements from our Lord that address an attitude that if indeed it were implemented by everyone who claims to be a child of God, the church of our Lord would be a beautiful place indeed where there would never be dissension based upon selfish attitudes or selfish considerations because you see all of these statements call for an emptying or a denial of self. They call for us to, to kill Jim Dearman <laughs> and to kill ourselves in the sense that we consider others better than ourselves, and that we do not allow our selfish ambitions or our greed or, or any other attitude that would be, would be opposed to the attitude of the child of God to enter in and to cause us to react or act in such a way as to hurt others, but always to do that which would be 
encouraging and uplifting and helpful. And as we've noted in Hebrews 10, 24, to stir one another up to love and to good works. There is an attitude here that must be understood and appreciated as an attitude that says it's no longer self when you become a child of God. It's not about you anymore. It's about drawing near to God and doing everything you can to please God. And so these are important statements. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that takes us back to the law of Moses. It takes us back to the 21st chapter of Exodus, for example, where indeed that is stated. And um, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's Exodus 21, verse 24. And so indeed, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc., was a part of the law of Moses. But at the time that Jesus came to this earth and addressed these Pharisees and addressed us for all time to come for that matter, there had been a perversion of that law. That law was a law that was designed to counter, if you will, the law of the jungle, as it has been called. The law of the jungle would work this way. You knock out my tooth, and I'll knock out all of your teeth, and then I'll kill you. That is the kind of personal retaliation gone to seed that the law of Moses was designed to check or to bring into compliance with a realistic punishment for those who were the violators of the law. In other words, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was something that was designed to prevent excessive and personal retaliation on the part of individuals. And beyond that, it was not a law that was to be carried out by the individual, but through the Jewish judicial processes that were placed there by God through Moses and the various judges that were in place under the Jewish system that were to render that judgment. It was not to be done by an individual. And yet the Pharisees of Jesus' time had made it basically your duty to personally retaliate. They had not only given you the right personally to do so, but they were practicing that personal retaliation and basically projecting it as being your duty to do so. That is a perversion of the original law of Moses, as they had perverted so many other aspects of the law of Moses. And so the law of Moses was to restrain excessive retaliation. It was to bring into a just arrangement those punishments for the various crimes that were committed. And it was not to be done by individuals. Remember the scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. That has always been the case and has never changed. And so Jesus is stating correctly that they had said, yes, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but their practice of the law was a perversion of it. And Jesus goes beyond, he goes beyond the necessity of of any kind of retaliation, whether it's through the judicial process or not, when he says your attitude ought to be that you are not looking to get revenge either through a judicial process or any other means just because you have been wronged in some way. But your attitude should be an attitude of perseverance, an attitude of forgiveness, an attitude of patience, an attitude of resisting 
not resisting an evil person, but actually enduring the harm. And that's the Christian attitude. I ran across an illustration along these lines as to the impact that this kind of attitude can have when it's put into practice, the attitude that Jesus is enjoining here upon every follower of Christ. A missionary, a gospel preacher by the name of Colin Byrne Smith, had given an illustration of an Australian missionary who dared to go to a group of cannibals to try to convert them. And he took a boat into the inlet to get to the place where this cannibal tribe lived. And upon his arrival there, he endured every verbal abuse, every insult that they heaped upon him at that time. And a long time later, after he had converted many of them and had established a congregation there, he asked the old chief of the tribe, who had become a Christian by that time, why did you not eat me when I came to you initially? And the old chief said, we, the reason we eat people, the reason we eat people is because we want to acquire the skills and the bravery that we see in them. And nobody wanted to eat you because the way you endured all the insults and the abuse that we heaped upon you, no one wanted to be like you. So we didn't want to eat you. So there is some advantage in being humble and accepting abuse. That is a beautiful illustration of the attitude that Jesus is portraying here in these verses. He's not saying that we should not be courageous. He's not saying that we should not be honorable. He is not saying that there's no situation where you cannot defend yourself. If your life is threatened, the Bible gives you the ability and the right to defend yourself. But he's not talking about that kind of threat here. He's talking about somebody smiting you on your right cheek. He's talking about that kind of Insult, And that's what he addresses specifically in verse 39, where he says, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, again, is this to be followed literally and to the letter to the extent that that's all we're required to do? Or is Jesus using this to illustrate, again, the attitude that should characterize every child of God in terms of being patient, enduring slights, enduring abuses that are not a threat to our lives, obviously, so as to hopefully have some positive impact on those who would injure us in this way. Now, if it's literally, whosoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if that's all you're required to do, then once he hits you on the right cheek, and you turn the other, and he hits you on that cheek, then you can deck him. If indeed this is a literal letter-for-letter letter application. No, I think not. I think what Jesus is saying here is that we are to endure slights and wrongs that are not a threat to our physical lives or to the lives of our children and our families. We have a right to defend them. To the extent of taking life, I believe. The Old Testament affirms so. The New Testament does not contradict that. Exodus 21, again, talks about the thief 
breaking into your house, and if you shed his blood while he is breaking in, there is no blood shed on your hands for that. Now, if you let him get out and the next day you kill him, that's a different situation. But if he's breaking in and you take his life to protect your family, that is not by violation of God's law. So he's obviously not talking about defending oneself in a circumstance like that. He's talking about the kind of slight, the kind of injury, the kind of insult that we should as Christians demonstrate the Christian spirit by enduring and showing an attitude that may indeed actually turn our enemy into our friend and heap coals of fire upon his head. You remember, and that reminds me of, John, of uh, uh, Paul's statement in emulation of what Jesus teaches here very definitely in Romans chapter 12. And what Paul writes there, some of those verses beginning at verse uh, 9, for example. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Uh, fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Down at verse 17 of Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And listen to verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. And then he goes on to deal with something with which we'll deal in just a moment in this same section of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, if you're what? Your enemy is hungry. Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's the very same teaching that we're examining here in the Sermon on the Mount. As the Apostle Paul reiterates and uh, emphasizes the same attitude that Jesus is enjoining upon us here in Matthew chapter 5 in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Then in verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Again, dealing with the kind of attitude that the Christians should exhibit. The tunic, as the New King James renders it, is rendered coat in some translations, and that would have been the inner garment that the individual wore. But the cloak would have been the outer garment. The cloak was never allowed under the law of Moses to be taken even um, uh, for debt, for uh, an indebtedness, uh, in order as collateral for an indebtedness because it was used at night to cover one when one slept. And so it was not allowed that you ever take a person's cloak under any circumstance because he needed it to stay warm at night. But Jesus says, here, here's the kind of attitude that I want you to have. If he takes your coat, I want you to give him your cloak also. In other words, I want you to do what? I want you to go the second mile. And that's where we are in verse 41. All of this section is dealing with what we might accurately call second mile religion. Listen to verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile... Go with him too. This advocates what we call second mile religion or a rule of life. 
Jesus never commanded, you insist on your rights. That's not a command. He never simply commanded, do your duty. But he said, do also what is not your duty. Now the background of verse 41, where Jesus mentions the being compelled to go one mile, go with him too. The Roman government had adapted uh, what the Persians and then the Greeks after them had uh, initiated, and that was a practice where someone involved in a government service could compel a citizen to help him in that service. For example, a Roman soldier could compel a Jew to carry his pack or to help him with his burden and to go at least one mile with him. I've read that there were some Jews who put a stake one mile away from their home so that they would know exactly how far they had to go, and they weren't about to go any farther than that. So they had it marked. That's not second-mile religion. That's first-mile religion, if you will. And Jesus says, if he compels you to go one mile, go with him too. We see an example of one being compelled into government service right before the crucifixion. Remember Simon of Cyrene? They compelled him, the Roman authorities did, to carry the cross of Jesus. That's an example or an illustration of this very thing that Jesus is talking about here. And what are you saying is, if a soldier on his duty comes to you and says, go with me one mile, do this, carry this burden, etc., go with him too. Have that kind of attitude. Could that possibly open any doors for evangelism, for that Roman soldier, could that possibly get his attention and cause him to ask, who is this person that I compelled to go a mile and he gladly and happily and willingly went with me two miles with a smile on his face? That soldier would obviously think there's something different about this person. How much different should it be with us today about how others view us in our daily lives and the attitudes that we exhibit? and in the attitudes that we exhibit toward one another. Are we practicing, in other words, second-mile religion? And so he doesn't approve the, the, the action itself of the government compelling the citizens to go a mile. He just uses it as an illustration to say to us, we need to do more than is required. Why is it that we're afraid to go the second mile sometimes, some of us? Well, many times afraid to become involved because perhaps someone will take advantage of them if they become involved. Why is it that many do not participate actively and fully in the visitation program of the church? Maybe it's for that reason. But we need to realize that Christianity is a religion of involvement. That's what Christianity is. Being involved is necessary to our salvation. And yet we have at times some with a rebellious spirit, not willing to cooperate, not cooperating with the eldership, not cooperating with certain things in the congregation, and that's simply wrong. That's simply wrong. But there are some things that going the second mile will do. First of all, and most importantly, it will allow us to find Jesus. Think about that. You will not find Jesus in the first mile. 
If you want to find Jesus and walk with Jesus, you'll have to find him in the second mile, won't you? Because that's what Christianity is. I've used in times past a different illustration to talk about Christianity being in three stages as far as how one grows as a Christian. A new convert is in the please help me stage. I need encouragement. I need, I need your help. And then there's the I can help myself stage. In other words, I have grown, I have matured to the point that you don't have to be so concerned about me as to whether I'll be here every time the doors are opened or not. I, I'm, I'm standing on my own two feet, so to speak. Not that I don't need mutual encouragement. We always need that. But as I've said before, tragically, that's where many people think Christianity ends, is in that second stage. And they do not realize that the third stage of Christian growth and development is the now please let me help you stage. Let me help you. That's where the real joy of Christianity is found. That's where Jesus is found, truly. He's found in the let me help you stage. He is found in the second mile. And that's where the joy is found. And that's one of the things that second mile religion will do. It will bring us happiness. Again, think about two Jews working in the field when the soldier passes by. One goes two miles in a happy, friendly spirit. The other goes one, grumbling all the way. What kind of impression will they leave? You know, it was William James who said, you can act your way to feeling right much easier than feeling your way to acting right. There's an inner happiness that's derived from helping others. It is a good feeling. It is an inner glow. And in the church, going the second mile will absolutely revolutionize our lives. It will give us renewed zeal. It will give us a greater love for the Lord, for His church, for the brethren. Going the second mile will bring happiness to others. Doing a little more will bring out the best in others. And in the work of the Lord, going the second mile will help others to do the same. It will encourage them to do the same. And they'll be happier people for that. Go the second mile to encourage the brethren. Go the second mile to encourage the elders. Go the second mile to encourage the new converts. Go the second mile to encourage one another. Going the second mile makes the ordinary burdens of life lighter, more enjoyable. I can guarantee it'll make the work of the preacher easier, makes the work of the elders easier, makes every faithful member's work a lot easier if we'll all make sure that we are practicing second mile religion. Just one member of a home with that attitude can change that home, can it? It can be contagious. Some homes have nothing but happiness. Others have everything but happiness. And yet just one member of a congregation can help to change that congregation. His attitude will spread to others. But you know something? On the other side of that coin, one bad attitude can spread to others. Which do we want to be responsible for spreading? Happiness and love or dissension and strife and bickering? There's a story that's told of an East 
Point Georgia man who mortgaged his home to buy coal for needy families. And a second time he mortgaged it to pay for a new church building. Now that's the kind of action that can change a congregation. And what about attending services? Is the attitude, do I have to go? Or is the attitude, why not be there? Because I want to be there. I want to be there. Going willingly in the proper spirit. What about in the home? What about husbands when the wife asks you for grocery money? Why don't you give her twice what she asked for? When she regains consciousness, she'll thank you for it. I guarantee you she will. Now, don't be like the man who's talking to his friend, and he said, my wife wants $20 every morning. And the friend said, what does she do with it? He said, I don't know. I've never given it to her. (laughs) Well, give it to her. See what she'll do with it. And husbands tell her sometimes, tell her, I don't see how you do so much with what we have. I don't see how you do it, but I appreciate you for it. And members of the church, tell the elders or the preacher, I want something to do or I want to make sure I'm involved. Such little acts will change burdens to joys. Was it John F. Kennedy in his inaugural speech who said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country? Well, bring that into the spiritual realm. The acid test of Christianity. The acid test of Christianity is not what does it do for me, but what does it make me do for others? And where does this second mile rule apply? It applies to every aspect of life. To our young people, to those who are parents, to those who are husbands, to those who are wives, to those who are employers, to those who are employees. And certainly as an employee, I need to go the second mile on the job. The Bible has much to say in principle about the employer-employee relationship. And so if you'll go the second mile, you won't need a job for very long, most likely, will you? Not likely. And of course, most importantly, going the second mile will save souls. Go back to verse 11 of this chapter we're studying. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. To Timothy, Paul wrote, Let no man despise your youth, but be an example to those who believe in word, in manner of life, in love, in faith, in purity. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul said to the weak, I became weak that I might gain the weak. I am become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. If you'll do these things, we'll save the souls of others as well as our own. And of course, verse 42 says, Give to him who asks you and for him from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. Now that's not a blanket 
endorsement of giving to anyone. If some drunk approaches you and says, I don't need money to buy another bottle, does this passage teach you've got to give him that money? Well, of course not. We know there are limitations here. We know that we are to be good stewards, and one passage of Scripture cannot be construed in such a way as to contradict other clear passages of Scripture. And so we have to do all that we can to determine whether someone we are helping is truly in need, or indeed they're taking us for a ride. And it's not always easy to ascertain that. Better to err on the side of generosity than on the side of stinginess, obviously. Don't we love the second-mile people, though? Think about it. They are always way ahead of you. They're always anticipating your every need, your wish, your desire, and trying hard to please in all things. How do we describe the second-milers? They are the people in this world with the spirit of the other world in them. That's who the second milers are. The people who are living in this world but with the spirit of the other world in them. And that spirit showing constantly in their lives. And how the world will love the church if we have this attitude. And how we will love each other if we have this attitude. And how we will love the Lord. As I said, you won't find Jesus in the first mile. You'll have to go the second mile to walk with Jesus. Are you a second miler? Are you even a first miler? If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, then you have not begun the journey. And we plead with you to do that tonight, to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to repent of your sins, confess Jesus to be the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And then you have entered the way and if you will rise to walk in newness of life from that watery grave of baptism and determine that from day one you're going to be a second miler and practice the very things that Jesus taught right here in these passages we've studied tonight, you'll have nothing to be concerned about when you've come the last mile of the way. But if you need to come tonight to obey the gospel or to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that now. And all the second milers out here, you just keep walking with Jesus in that second mile. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand to sing?